Hey everyone, I'm Brian Hoops and this is Walking Through Fire. So, war is a crazy thing to say the least. I served in the U.S. Army and deployed twice to Afghanistan. When I got off active service around 2012, I got out because I fucking hated active duty and ended up going to college. Towards the end of my bachelor's degree, I didn't really have any job set up, so I just started looking anywhere for employment. I decided if I didn't have a career after a year of graduating, I debated about either joining the Australian Army, because at the time they were taking American veterans to uh, come and serve in the military in Australia, or I debated about joining the French Foreign Legion. Now, as I said, I served in Afghanistan, which was particularly tame because the U.S. military during this time wasn't launching very large-scale operations. The time that I spent in Afghanistan wasn't exactly like, you know, soldiers jumping into Normandy or invading the shores of France on the same day. It wasn't like the soldiers of Gallipoli or anything like that. It was mostly just, you know, you fly out, you go to your base, and you do kind of patrols outside of there. It was more similar almost to, like, Vietnam. I think really what I'm trying to get at is that modern-day military operations and pretty much how we've progressed with technology in the military has led to a better system of tracking soldiers and, you know, where they go, what they do, etc., uh, etc. Et we have kind of these systems in place to understand what all is going on in the battlefield. However, though, the topic that we're going to be discussing today is soldiers who fought for different armies. And we're going to focus mostly on World War II soldiers because this is just where I could find the most information on a few of these different men that we're going to be talking about today. Back during World War II, getting captured by the enemy was a very, very real thought. And depending on what side you were fighting for, and who you were surrendering to, there was a very, very good chance you'd end up being tortured or fucking put to death immediately or have to face the horrible conditions of your enemy's POW camp, depending on who said enemy was. So if you had the opportunity to get out of the camps and fight for who would be your enemy, that was kind of almost a plus side because then you would maybe have the opportunity to escape. But the stories we're going to be covering today are the accounts of men who were put in fairly extraordinary circumstances and had to, had to make do with the situation they had in order to survive. So please keep that in mind while we're going through this. The first soldier we'll be covering today is a guy named Yang Kyung-jong. There was a movie made that is loosely based off of his life called My Way which I watch, and it's pretty good, but again, I can't emphasize enough that it was quote-unquote loosely based on his life. Kyung Zhang was born on March 3rd, 1920, in the then-Japanese Protectorate of Korea, or Manchuria at the time it was known, or as we know today as South Korea. Kyung Zhang's early life is relatively a mystery. I found that pretty much he was probably from a poor family, so I would imagine, as we covered in our James Dresnock slash North Korean episode, he probably wasn't formally educated, and if so, he probably didn't have the means to record his own life and times in his youth, because Koreans at the time were kind of colonized by the Japanese government. 
Another reason it's hard to find Kyung Jong's history is that he died in 1992 and there really aren't any formal interviews with him. There weren't any book deals or anything of that sort. After, and we'll see this later on in the story, after his time in the military, he just kind of lived out his life and didn't really didn't really like talk about his service. His own three kids didn't really know the extent of his military service until after his death in 1992. Uh, the real exception is the aforementioned 2012 movie My Way, which again is loosely based off Kyung Jong's life, but it's not a fully accurate depiction. So all that being said, when Kyung Jong was 18 years old, and this is in 1938, he was conscripted into the Imperial Japanese Army and more specifically the Kwantung Army. I have to go ahead and make a correction here because I believe it was in the Dresnok episode where I said that Japan didn't start enlisting Koreans until 1944. Uh, I found this to be wrong. They actually started enlisting uh, Koreans and Manchurians as early as 1935. So gotta kind of throw out the correction there. The Kwantung Army was a branch of the Imperial Japanese Army, and they essentially acted as a military occupation force of Manchuria at the time. A lot of the smaller details from Pyongyang's military service are kind of left out of history. For the most part, I could just basically find the dates of the battles he partook in, the first of which was in the service of the Kwantung Army when they faced the Soviet Union's Red Army in what is now known as the Battle of Kalkin Gol, which was on the border of Manchuria and Mongolia. The Red Army and the Imperial Japanese Army did not have major fights during World War II, but rather different spans of smaller border conflicts that started around 1932 and concluded around 1939. Personally, I believe both the Soviet Union and the Japanese during World War II were so strapped for resources and manpower that I believe that the Red Army just wanted to focus on the fight on the Eastern Front against the uh, Germans and the Japanese wanted to more focus on China and the Southeast Pacific. But that's me just theorizing there. The Battle of Kalkin Gol was more an escalation of force-on-force -force actions between the Red Army with the Mongolians and the Imperial Army with the Koreans that began around May in 1939. It took place on, as I said before, the Mongolia-Manchuria border. I won't go over the full battle details because that in itself is an episode. The battle ended in September of 1939 in a decisive Soviet-Mongolian victory. This almost changed the course of World War II because had Japan succeeded here, they potentially would have been able to open a second front against Russia during the course of the war. I could not find any detailed records in terms of what Kyongjian's exact actions were during the battle. All I could really find was that at some point during the battle, he was captured by the Soviet Union. Kyongjian was sent to a gulag and spent time doing hard labor in some camp somewhere. We don't really know where. Again, there aren't detailed accounts of what his life was like as a Soviet-era prisoner of war in a forced labor camp, but I could imagine they weren't pleasant. I've read various conditions of similar people who were in the, you know, 
same surroundings and is not that much different of the concentration camps in Germany that were found later. By 1942, the Red Army was running out of able-bodied men because the Soviet Union's earliest strategy was, quote-unquote, make everyone run blindly into machine gun fire. I downplay that, but there were several flaws in the Soviet Union's defensive and political plan, and I... I'll, I'll get into that in, like, later episodes. Anyway, though, Kyung Zhang had been in a gulag for about three years now, and I can only imagine he was looking for any chance to get out. And at this point, the Red Army was looking for, quote-unquote, volunteers, and Kyung Zhang decided to pledge allegiance to the Soviet Union in 1942. It wasn't long after that Kyung Jong joined the Red Army when he was thrust back into action. Kyung Jong fought during the Third Battle of Kharkov. And to give a brief overview, Kharkov is outside of the Ukraine. And at this point, during the Eastern Front between Germany and Russia, Germany is coming off of the loss at Stalingrad which was huge because now the Red Army was kind of getting the, you know, getting the stones to start pushing the Germans back out of Russia. The Red Army ended up losing the Third Battle of Kharkov. Even though in strength they outnumbered the Germans, the Soviet Army was heavily dependent on the ground forces, and when I say ground forces, I mean like foot soldiers. Like literally just guys with rifles being thrown at the smaller but more organized German tanks and the Germans also as well controlled air power at the time. So it was almost a slaughter. I think in the end it was about 13,000 Germans against about like 90,000 Russians. But overall the battle did not play out for the Red Army nor did it play out for Kyongjong. Again, we don't really know the actions of Kyung Jong during the battle uh, because he just he simply just didn't really record them. But we can determine that in mid March 1943, Kyung Jong had been taken prisoner again, except this time by Nazi Germany. So by 1943, World War II was coming to a close. The Germans at the time knew they were losing but still wanted to throw everything they had at the Allies. Kyung Jong was conscripted again, but by the German army, and sent off to the Ost Battalion, or Eastern Battalion. The Eastern Battalions of Nazi Germany were made up of foreign, mostly conscripted, Eastern European soldiers. Anyway, Kyung Jong was now wearing the uniform of a German Wehrmacht soldier and was sent to the Atlantic Wall in northern France in 1944 to protect against a potential Allied invasion. That particular invasion came to truth on June 6, 1944, when British, Canadian, American, Free, Free Polish, Free French forces stormed the beaches of Normandy and dropped them in the sky with a massive airborne assault. Lieutenant Robert Brewer of Easy Company 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment 101st Airborne Division was informed that there were four Asian soldiers in German uniforms who were captured by the regiment. Uh, they 
they had the suspicion that for some reason that Japan was possibly involved with this, but uh, there was a person who immediately corrected that they were Korean and not Japanese. Zhang Zhang was again sent to another POW camp, but this time in the United Kingdom, where he spent the remainder of the war. And afterwards, he decided not to return to Korea. Kyung Jong ended up coming to the United States and living in Cook County, Illinois, outside of Chicago. He ended up getting married. He had, he had three kids, and he quietly passed away in 1992. And that is the story of Yang Kyung Jong. I don't know what he was fully expecting in life, but I hope he got some peace somewhere. And, you know, I mean, it's a very interesting story. He fought for three different armies during the same river war, and all of them opposed each other. But we'll go ahead and move on. The next guy we're going to be covering, his story turns very, very interesting because he not only fought for the Finnish as well as the German armies during the world, during World War II, but he also became one of the first U.S. Army Green Berets and fought for the U.S. during the Vietnam War. He was born Lori Alain Tourny on May 28, 1919 in Vilpuri, Finland. Later, when Tourny came to the United States, he Americanized his name to Larry Thorne, which is for the remainder of this segment of the episode. I will be referring to him as Thorne or Larry Thorne. So, just wanted to throw that one out there. Thorne spent his youth skiing and competed in various other sports. His father described Thorne later in life as having a thirst for war, even in childhood. Uh, Thorne, in his youth and his teenage years, would hang out in his free time at the local Defense Force Armory. Later in his adolescence, Thorne joined the Finnish Civil Guard, which is comparable to the U.S. Army National Guard. By 1938, tensions between the Soviet Union and Finland were growing because the Soviets wanted to expand westward and Finland was their first stop. The Soviet Union wanted very large land concessions from Finland and they kind of posed this as an agreement that if the Finnish gave in, the Soviets would protect them. But Finland just pretty much wasn't having that shit and told Russia to fuck off. Also, in 1938, Thorne was drafted into the Finnish Army. He was assigned to the 4th Jager Infantry Battalion, which is described as an elite light infantry unit. By 1939, Thorne was sent by his superiors to non-commissioned officer school and left at the rank of sergeant. He was pretty much described as a top-notch soldier. Later in 1939, around November, the Soviet Union, shortly after invading Poland, invaded Finland, and this kicked off what is now known today as the Winter War. The war itself did not last long. The fighting actually ended around March of 1940, so it was about like a six or seven month conflict, but it was between the Finnish army and the Soviet Union. It was a bit of a sidebar war for the Soviets, but the Finnish quickly established themselves as a force to be reckoned with. Thorne was, at the time, a buck sergeant, but volunteered to lead patrols as much as he possibly could. Thorne got his proverbial combat cherry popped in the beginning of January 1940. Thorne was primarily in command of a ski infantry unit, which 
isn't Finnish or military jargon. It was literally an infantry unit that would ski into battle. And for people who find that ridiculous, like, there are, during this time in World War II, like, the Danish, they, they had a bicycle infantry unit. Uh, the Japanese also had a bicycle infantry unit. This was a time where the tide of war was kind of changing. So, I mean, it wasn't completely ridiculous to think, like, oh, these guys are going to ski in and, you know, start shooting up the place and then ski back out. Like, it, it, it was the thing back then. So this was Thorne's true, quote-unquote, baptism by fire. And the story goes that Thorne led an assault through almost two feet of snow. Now, really, really sit here and think about what the deepest snow you have ever had to walk through before. It might have been up to your knees. I've lived in northern New York before, and snow gets incredibly, incredibly crazy up there. Now, imagine try doing that with, like, 40 plus pounds of gear getting shot at and having to run through the entire snow while shooting back and keeping that type of situational awareness. But Thorn's squad advanced towards a Soviet machine gun bunker and on the way took out several foxholes and they were armed pretty much with only rifles, submachine guns, and hand grenades. Thorn's squad took out the machine gun bunker and with Thorne leading it, they did not have a single casualty. So after Thorne led the assault on the Russian machine gun bunker, he was sent to officer training school. And that's where he was at the end of the Winter War in March of 1940. Now, this is kind of where the story turns a little bit complicated because in March of 1940, the Winter War ended with a series of treaties that led to the Soviet Union taking the portions of Finland in which they wanted. The Finnish were still in a fuck Russia mindset and wanted to keep the fight going. So, to an extent, at this point in World War II, the Finnish military kind of took sides with Nazi Germany so they could continue fighting Russia in what is now known today as the Continuation War. Thorne hated the Soviet Union for invading his homeland, and the Finnish overall had a common enemy with Nazi Germany, which is Communist Soviet Union. As mentioned in Kyung Jong's story, the German SS recruited foreign volunteers, which is very ironic. I'll cover the SS and the foreign divisions of the German Nazi army in a later episode. But anyway, with this said, Thorne joined the Waffen SS to fight on the Eastern Front against the Soviets. I will note right here that his that Thorne's biographer wrote specifically that when he interviewed Thorne that he did not believe in Nazi ideology but was more against the Soviet Union than he was you know pro-Nazi so I'm just I'm throwing this out here I'm not trying to sound like a Nazi apologist or anything like that or you know any any anything in that nature I'm not trying to like justify like you know I'm not trying to sound like one of those guys like well you know the swastika at one time meant something else I'm not trying to come off as that type of person but I'm just trying to say that Thorne himself hated the Soviet Union and had an outlet to continue his fight against them so I'm just I'm, I'm putting that out there I'm not trying to apologize for Nazi Nazi Germany or trying to justify what they did but the circumstances that we're in or that Thorne was in. This is just, just kind of how I'm trying to set up the story. So I just, again, just want to throw that out there. 
Thorne was recognized as a lieutenant in the Waffen SS. Thorne led a unit of Finnish SS troops and continued his guerrilla war against the Red Army. The Finnish were not as large of a force, and they mostly partook in disruption warfare against the Red Army, essentially skirmishes against the Soviets on a very, very small level. Thorne was good at what he did to the point where the Soviet Union actually put a $3 million, uh, uh, $3 million Finnish marks reward on his head if he was killed because he led such an incredible guerrilla force or guerrilla war against the Soviet Union. Thorne's unit was even nicknamed something like the Tachma Thorne, which I can't, I don't know how it sounds, I probably butchered that in Finnish, but it's supposed to sound badass like Rico's Roughnecks in that movie Starship Troopers. Thorne's actions ended up leading him to be awarded the Monarheim Cross, which is the equivalent of the Medal of Honor in the United States. He also received the Iron Cross, which is the same distinction, except in German. By September 1944, the tide of World War II was shifting against Germany. Finland signed into another treaty to cease fire with the Soviet Union, but Thorne was determined to continue his fight. So, late 1944, Thorne joined the Sonder Nord which acted as a paramilitary force for Nazi Germany. So Thorne's time in the German service, it ended in two accounts, uh, which I could find about how this all played out. So the first is that by early 1945, Thorne became disillusioned with the training that he was receiving from the Germans because when he joined the Sonderkommando, which was supposed to act as like this uh, elite like guerrilla warfare unit, he was sent to Germany. And during his time, you know, getting training, he had became disillusioned, so he deserted and returned to Finland, which at the time had a pro-Soviet Union government installed, and he was arrested and tried. The second is that Thorne abandoned his training to fight with German forces. During the fall of Germany, more specifically the fall of Berlin, Thorne was captured by the British. He was sent back to Finland. Either way... Thorne was arrested and tried for treason. He was sentenced to eight years in prison, but continuously escaped and was recaptured. Thorne overall only served one full year in prison, and in 1948 was pardoned by the Finnish government. In 1950, Thorne fled to Venezuela and got a job on a freight ship. On one of the routes Thorne was on, it took him to Mobile Bay, Alabama. When he was in Alabama, Thorne jumped ship and literally swam to the shore of Alabama to take refuge in the United States. While in the U.S., Thorne reached out to Alpo Martien, who was a former Finnish army officer during the Winter War, that after when the war, Winter War ended, he came to the U.S. Army. Martien tried getting as many foreigner, former Finnish soldiers to the U.S. to continue to fight the Germans and the Russians after the Winter War ended, and they were actually nicknamed Martian's Men. Martian vouched for Thorne, but the fact that it was recorded that Thorne fought for the Nazis was a giant problem for his immigration status. Thorne, in order to get his full acceptance in the United States, took a knife and cut off his SS blood tattoo, 
And for those of you who don't know what the blood tattoo is, the SS had this policy that members had to get their blood type tattooed onto their body. Now, from what I've seen, the location varied. I've seen some sources where it was below the collarbone, somewhere it was on like the left side of your rib cage, and some where it was on the left arm below the armpit, and that is where uh, Torn's, that's where his, his blood tattoo was, was on his left arm, and it was inside slightly below the rib cage. Either way, Thorne cut that shit off to get asylum, and by 1953, he was granted permanent residence in the United States. Thorne decided to pick back up his military career, and he joined the U.S. Army at the rank of private on February 1st, 1954. Thorne's abilities as a soldier were quickly noticed, and he was assigned slash volunteered to the newly formed 7th Special Forces Group, where he was sent to officer candidate school. Thorne was commissioned as a lieutenant in 1957 and was promoted to captain by 1960. He was assigned to 10th Special Forces Group in Germany. In 1962, Thorne led a team to recover a downed U.S. Army helicopter in the, on the northern border of Iran. After Germany and his stint in Iran, Thorne deployed overall twice to Vietnam. His first stint was from January to June 1964, where he partook in search and destroy as well as counterinsurgency operations. Thorne began his second tour in Vietnam in February of 1965. Thorne was deployed to Long Tan, South Vietnam, and was assigned to Military Assistance Command Studies and Observation Group, or MACV-SOG. MACV SOG was not considered a special forces unit, quote unquote, but it had some of the toughest, toughest motherfuckers in the military at the time. You had guys from Marine Corps Force Re Recon, you had Army Rangers, you had Navy SEALs, you had the baddest of the bad, but it was, I'll, I'll have to, I don't want to keep saying like, I'm going to do an episode over this, but I'll delve in deeper to what MACV SOG is. It deserves an episode on itself, and we'll we'll explore it later. In October 1965, Thorne was a part of one of the first missions of U.S. forces crossing over into Laos. The mission that he was tasked with was doing a area reconnaissance of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Thorne was at this point an intelligence officer and not a ground soldier, so he was in a command helicopter. So basically, the best way how to explain why I say a command helicopter, so during wars or battles during Vietnam, what would happen is there would be what you would call like the air mobile infantry. So these helicopters would come down and they would touch on the ground, they would release a bunch of troops and everything like that. Like all the infantrymen would jump out and then they would immediately start engaging with the VC, but there would be one helicopter that remained behind that kind of circled the battlefield to command and direct the troops, and that is what is called the command helicopter. So I just kind of want to give a little bit of background on that before going forward. Bad weather hit Thorne's team while this operation took off, and he debated withdrawal. Thorne confirmed successful insertion of the landing party and began the aerial withdrawal, but it was too late. The details of what happened are completely unknown, 
but it seems that Thorne's helicopter was either crashed or shot down. Either way, Larry Thorne did not come back from that mission in South Vietnam. He was officially declared dead in 1966, and in 1999, the Department of Defense had a task force that, that was dedicated to finding remains of American Vietnam War soldiers, and he was amongst some of the ones that were discovered. In 2003, Thorne's family gave the official okay, and Larry Thorne was buried here in the United States in Arlington National Cemetery. And that so ends the life of Larry Thorne. The last soldier that we're going to be looking at today is Joseph Jumpin' Joe Byerly. Joseph Byerly was born August 25th, 1923 in Muskegon, Michigan. Byerly was the third of seven children. His grandparents are immigrants from the Bavaria region of Germany. And growing up, Byerly developed a mix of German and English and... He was subsequently picked on in school because of his, uh, his difficulty understanding the English language. Byerly's father was a factory worker, and much like many other Americans in the late 1920s and early 30s, his father lost his job due to the Great Depression, and the family was financially destroyed. Byerly came into his own during high school and was described as a very gifted athlete. When he graduated St. Joseph High School in Muskegon, he was voted, and these are like the most 1940 titles I've ever heard in a yearbook. He was voted best informed, most obvious temper, class shark, which I have no idea what the fuck that means, and best dress. Byerly was especially talented at baseball. He was offered a full-ride scholarship at Notre Dame, but declined. Byerly had seen the attacks on Pearl Harbor and the subsequent attacks in the Philippines, which led to the Bataan Death March. So by 1942, Byerly enlisted in the U.S. Army and volunteered for the Airborne Infantry. Byerly excelled at airborne training, particularly the part where you do live jumps out of the plane. He got the nickname Jumpin' Joe because he liked jumping from planes so much that he would volunteer to take the name tags of fellow soldiers and do their jumps for them. Byerly ended up getting assigned to the 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment, 101st Airborne Division. In 1943, the 101st was sent to England. And this is where Byerly's story turns pretty interesting. In April 1944, two months before the infamous June 6th invasion, Byerly and two other soldiers from the 506th Parachute Infantry were tasked with doing a secret mission. Byerly was dropped into Nazi-occupied France with gold bars strapped to his body that was the equivalent of $500,000 at the time. And... He was tasked with delivering this to the French resistance. Byerly succeeded and spent almost a week living in the woods in France in various safe houses until he could make it to a secure airfield in northern France to a plane that would take him back to the 101st Airborne Division in England. Less than a month later, newly promoted Sergeant Byerly was dropped into France again to deliver gold coins to the French resistance. 
he managed once again to make it back to England safely. Firely partook in legendary airborne jumps in June of 1944. The Knight of Infamy is best described in his own words. Now this is from Byerly's diary, which was found later. We flew approximately 90 minutes from England when we hit the Normandy Peninsula. We started taking AA and ground fire, flying at approximately 700 feet. Several planes were hit and exploded or crashed. We got stand up and hook up red light, green light, and jumped at 400 feet. And I landed on the church roof of San Home Dumas, taking fire from church steeple, slid down and made my way through a cemetery surrounding a church over a wall and headed towards our objective, which was two wooden bridges on du Duave River behind Utah Beach. The Germans had torched a house in the area where I jumped and were firing at the planes that followed us. Tracer bulls were crisscrossing in the sky. Many troopers were hit before even landing. Byerly landed in Combe du Mans, but his objective was on the Ove River, which was about 22 or 36, 22 miles or 36 kilometers away. Byerly was alone, and during the airborne phase of the Normandy invasion, a lot of paratroopers formed these small bands of fighting units and took over German objectives or German fighting positions, but I'm going to reiterate this. Byerly was 100% alone at this point. All the paratroopers of the D-Day invasion had primary objective and rallying points that they were supposed to get behind, but they also had these like secondary objectives. One of which was for Byerly blowing up a power station outside of the town they landed in. Now, Byerly succeeded in this when he exfiltrated, uh, he went into the hedgerows in Normandy, which were like giant bushes and trees that had thick foliage that provide cover and concealment. However, it was at nighttime and Byerly stumbled into a German machine gun nest and the Germans cartoonishly pointed like 12 guns into his face when he, uh, when he fell into their, into their midst. His dog tags were given to a German spy who tried crossing into Allied territory. The German spy was captured subsequently, and this led to the U.S. Army declaring Byerly killed in action. Byerly was actually on his way to a POW camp, and he was treated like complete shit as a POW. The Nazis really hated him because his last name was recognized as being Bavarian, and they saw him as a traitor to Germany. From what I could find, he never really went into detail of his life as a POW, but his daughter recalled noticing a dent in his head, and when she asked her father, Byerly, about it, he said, a German got mad at me. Byerly was taken to a POW camp, and I couldn't find the exact location. While there, he was forced on a heavy labor detail for the Germans, but he escaped for his first time. He was immediately caught and sent to another POW camp that was further east into Nazi territory. 
The next camp Byerly was sent to, he realized that this would be his last chance to get back to the American line. Byerly started hoarding cigarettes, which was, you know, essentially like money in the POW camps. And this was not only amongst prisoners, but also guards as well. Byerly hoarded enough to bribe a guard to let some of the captured DIs cut some of the wire in the fence around the camp and Byerly and a few were able to escape. Byerly jumped a train that he thought was going to Poland but was actually heading towards Berlin. The Gestapo caught Byerly and beat him brutally which is probably where the dent in his head came from. The German army intervened and he was sent back to the POW camp which was Stalag 3C in Aldrewitz in modern day Poland. In January 1945, Byerly quickly devised another escape plan upon returning to the Stalag. Him and some other POWs hid in empty trash containers that were leaving the base, but when the trucks were leaving the camps, the containers tipped over and Byerly and his fellow escapees were exposed. The guards spotted the three GIs and hosed them down. And when I say hosed them down, they opened fire on them. Byerly was the only one to survive and he jumped into a stream that took him down river. Byerly carefully maneuvered through German territory, hiding in farmhouses and shacks. And eventually he ran into a group of soldiers, but they were not American, nor were they German, but rather that of the Red Army. Byerly had come into contact with a battalion of the First Guards Tank Army of the Soviet Union. Byerly exited a farmhouse in which he was hiding out in at the time and held up a pack of Lucky Strike cigarettes. And he also yelled the phrase, Amerikanski Torvash, which roughly translates to American Comrade. Alexandro Sumensko, who she was the battalion commander of the Russian tank unit in which Byerly had approached. And she, she got close to Byerly and summoned a translator. Byerly said to the colonel, and I quote, I told her I was an escaped US POW and I wanted to join them and go to Berlin and with them to kill fucking Nazis. She accepted Byerly's story and Soon enough, Byerly was a sergeant in the Red Army. Byerly's first real stint of fighting came with the liberation of Stolag 3C, where he was recently a POW. Shortly after the liberation of Stolag 3C, a squad being led by Byerly was ambushed and he was shot in the leg. Byerly was transported back to a Red Army field hospital where he met Marshal Grigory Zhukov, who was basically the Dwight D. Eisenhower of Soviet forces at the time. Zhukov asked Byerly, Byerly if there was anything he could do to help him, and Byerly said he had lost all of his identification and wanted to go back to the United States. 
Zhukov told him that he would help out, and not even an hour later, Zhukov's personal interpreter handed Barely, Byerly a envelope with letters completely in Russian, which Byerly, I mean, he looked at them, and he had no idea what the fuck they said, and was confused, but the interpreter was like, just go to the nearest embassy, and they'll know what to do. Byerly did make it to a U.S. Embassy and was sent back to the United States in April or on April 21st, 1945, he was able to celebrate victory in Europe. Byerly, after his time in the army, he got married. He had three kids, one daughter, two sons, one of whom served in the 101st Airborne Division during the Vietnam War and the other actually became an ambassador for the U.S. ambassador to Russia and held that position from 2008 to 2012. Byerly passed away in 2004, but his legacy is continued through his children and his grandchildren. And that ends the life of Joe Byerly. I just want to thank everyone really quick for listening. Uh, we got some new listeners down in Australia and also over in the Netherlands. And I want to thank you guys for giving us a listen. I also want to give a special thanks to uh, my friend Dustin, who reached out to me. He said he enjoyed uh, the last episode. So I just want to thank everyone for their listener support. And, you know, if you guys have any suggestions for any future episodes, please go out, join the Facebook page, uh, follow us on Instagram, or go ahead and just send me an email. Uh, walking through fire podcast at gmail.com. Uh, I would support that and everyone's feedback. If it's negative, if it's positive. I don't really care. Go ahead. Send me an email. Tell me I, I should go eat shit and I'll, you know what? I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. I really don't care. But, um, for everyone listening, I appreciate you, uh, taking your time to hear the side of the story and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be out. Uh, with another episode here in the next, I want to say the next like two weeks or so, I will, I will drop a new episode here recently. I will stop trying to, you know, keep you on the edge of your seat. But again, thank you for listening. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Brian Hoops and this is Walking Through Fire.